Welcome to Byline Mendocino, coming to you today from Fort Bragg. I'm Alicia Bales. The KZYX News team is in Fort Bragg today to attend the third and final day of Coastal Commission hearings. Last night, several conservation groups held a reception for the members of the Coastal Commission at the Fort Bragg Botanical Gardens. Today, the Commission will reconvene their hearings at right about now, 9 o'clock, at the Fort Bragg Town Hall, where they'll hear a presentation by the City of Fort Bragg about the city's public planning process for the future of the Noyo headlands and the cleanup of the former mill site. There'll be time for public comment, and after the morning's hearings, there will be a public tour of the Noyo headlands starting around 10.30. The Noyo headlands is the site of the old Georgia Pacific Mill, which shut down in 2002. The site is several hundred acres between downtown Fort Bragg and the ocean. Last year, the company that operates the skunk train used their status as a railroad utility to make a claim of eminent domain over the site and was able to purchase it from Georgia Pacific for about $1.3 million. The city of Fort Bragg has challenged the utility status of the skunk train, and recently a court agreed the tourist train does not qualify as a utility. The ongoing controversy raises many questions about the future zoning, development, and cleanup of the former GP mill site. For one thing, the site is zoned solely for timber industrial use, and any future development for any other purpose would require a rezoning process that both the City of Fort Bragg and the Coastal Commission would have to approve. To help us better understand this week's hearings, KZYX intern and host of This Day in History, Max Colfax, delved into the history of the Coastal Commission. The California Coastal Commission, or CCC, was voted into establishment in 1972 with the Coastal Conservation Initiative, also known as Proposition Number 20, and it was officially made a law by the California Coastal Act of 1976. Um, one of the main reasons for it, the voter initiative was because of a large oil spill near Santa Barbara and private development cutting off beaches to public access. The California Coastal Commission consists of 12 voting and 3 non-voting commissioners. The Governor, Senate Rules Committee, and Speaker of the Assembly each appoint 4 voting members and the three non-voting members represent the Resources Agency, um, California Transportation Agency, and the State Land Commission. They meet each month to make decisions about whatever topics may come their way. Um, the Coastal Commission has an area of jurisdiction that's three miles offshore and up to five miles inland. To develop pretty much at all, there are some exceptions, but along the within their area of jurisdiction, you have to get a permit from the Coastal Commission or from a local government that has an LCP. Now, an LCP is a local coastal program which are devised by the local governments but must be submitted to the CCC for review against the various criteria laid out. Who likes the Coastal Commission and who doesn't like the Coastal Commission? Any idea? Well developers who want to build along the coast obviously would not like them because they're very stringent and have strict requirements for developing. But I would say that generally most people would appreciate the 
the non-developed area that remains because of their actions. The North Coast has a number of appointees on the Coastal Commission, including Mike Wilson, who's also a county supervisor in Humboldt. My name is Mike Wilson. I'm 3rd District Humboldt County Supervisor. That's been appointed to the Coastal Commission, and we're here in Fort Bragg for a Coastal Commission meeting. And tomorrow's your third day of hearings? Yeah, every month we have three days of hearings. So this time we're here in Northern California. So the Coastal Commission basically adjudicates the Coastal Act, which was enacted by uh, an initiative process in the early 1970s and then supported by legislation and then it created what was called a coastal zone of California. The Coastal Act itself has its own requirements that might be separate from local jurisdictions. Therein lies sometimes the conflict that we see but also sometimes the cooperation that we see in managing and helping to manage these resources both for local communities and protecting those for local communities but and also protecting those values for everybody in the state. Yeah. Is that the purpose of tomorrow's presentation to the Coastal Commission is to bring, is to have that conversation between the local jurisdiction and the Coastal Commission as the development of the Noyo Headlands moves forward? So tomorrow we're doing a tour of that and we're going to hear from citizens about their opinions about that. Um, it's something that's coming to us in the future, and since we're here, we're going to get a little bit about that. And that happens in a lot of our meetings where there's something coming in the future or there's some sort of controversy or maybe it's just a project, not necessarily controversial, and we'll just get information because it's good to get that on the ground. And what will the Coastal Commission do? You said this is an issue coming down in the future. What's the Coastal Commission's role in what is coming down in the future, which I assume is the development of, of the site? Well, the role is that we're, again, the agency that administers the Coastal Act. And so this is in the coastal zone. And so that's why we're, that's why we have interest in it, just like everything else in the coastal zone. So any planning in that area, any zoning, any of that has to, do you vote on that? Or do you, are you part of drafting it? Or how does that work? In general, applications are made to the Coastal Commission for either permits or coastal development permits, which is like a planning document and those sorts of things, or updates to coastal plans that are tiered off of maybe your general plan for a county or a city. So it's a, basically a filter. It's like a coastal act filter that it goes through, and then we adjudicate that as a body that makes discretionary decisions and votes on those things. Yeah. So you decide whether or not these planning documents comply with the Coastal Act. Exactly. You got it. Sarah McCormick is the assistant city manager of Fort Bragg and will make a presentation about Fort Bragg's public planning process for the Noyo Headlands at today's hearing. My name is Sarah McCormick. I work for the city of Fort Bragg as the assistant city manager. And how much of Fort Bragg, what percentage of Fort Bragg is the Noyo Headlands and how does the future of the Noyo Headlands impact the future of Fort Bragg? It is the future of Fort Bragg. It was a timber mill since the mid-19th century, probably like 1850-something, and it was a major job source. We need to fill that job source back. Um, so it's a, big, it's a big deal. It's a third, about a third of the land use of our town, 
and um, there's a lot of opportunities. The community's been working on community planning ever since the mill closed. One of the first things that they identified, the community identified as a priority was having a marine science and ocean center, which became the Noyo Center for Marine Science. So this, this idea of, the, of creating sustainable economy and replacing the jobs that were once here is really important. We've been working with a bunch of different organizations and institutes around blue economy initiatives. It's a very exciting opportunity. So it sounds like some big plans, big vision. How does what we're doing right here fit into all of that? Why, why does the city of Fort Bragg here and why are they um, making the presentation tomorrow, going on the site tour? What oh. are you hoping, like what's the, what's the hope here? Oh, so um, we were invited. Um, it was just, we were invited. The Coastal Commission always makes an effort to circulate around the state for their many meetings that they have. They haven't been here a few years. We've all, we always love to keep them updated on things that we're working on. Tomorrow we have, I'll be presenting along with our new, newly appointed, not our, our is the community hour, but not the city's, the Harbor Master down in the Noyo Harbor District, Anna Newman will be presenting, and then Tom Lamfer from the Department of Toxic Substance Control that has served this community by oversight of the mill site since it first became under their control. We'll be talking. Um, the, the site tour is open to the public. We're going to be visiting the mill ponds. We're going to be visiting where potentially this Blue Economy Innovation Hub would happen. And then Tristan McHugh with the Nature Conservancy is going to be talking about restoration efforts with kelp that are happening in the local area and all the different players in that. We're going to end the tour down at the newly acquired facility of Noyo Center for Marine Science, Slack Tide Cafe, where we will learn about the Noyo Center's plans for that facility as well as their ocean facility and hear from the harbor master on mooring basin improvements so it's going to be exciting so does the purchase of the site by the skunk train hurt or help or neither the plans that fort bragg has for the future so long as a community planning process occurs that's based in community planning it doesn't matter who owns it because it's going to serve the best and most useful use for our community. The, the issue at hand is whether or not local or state oversight is required, and that's what we're dealing with right now, which I won't comment on anymore because we have an active and ongoing litigation on that front. And that's about the utility status? Correct. The Coastal Commission is meeting right now at Fort Bragg Town Hall for their third and final day of hearings this week. At 10.30, there will be a public tour of the Noyo Headlands Members of the public are invited and very welcome to attend. Tune into the local news tonight at 6 o'clock for KZYX's full coverage of the day's events. This is Byline Mendocino. I'm Alicia Bales. I'm going to turn now toward a developing story out of Ukiah, having to do with a wave of revelations about violence in the Ukiah Police Department. KZYX News' Sarah Reith has been reporting on a handful of police malpractice cases that have come to light in the last few months. I talked with her about what she's found and what it means for public safety and police accountability in our community. You've been covering these stories that are coming out of the Ukiah Police Department of violent incidents involving their officers since 
I think the first one that really erupted, uh, that, that, that showed us there was a problem here is the Magdalena case. But now we're looking at four different cases with the Ukiah Police Department, including their chief of police, Noble Weidlich. Um, a news story that you broke this week um, about a, a man named Valdez who was brutally beaten by officers of the Ukiah Police Department is now has filed a civil case against them in, and is also facing his own criminal charges. Uh, the Kevin Murray case broke last week, or his, his actually didn't break, it sort of concluded last week with a very, very light plea deal where he was let off of all of the sex crimes that he was being uh, accused of. But it's starting to look like a very troubling pattern of violence within the UK Police Department. So can you talk with us about this story in its totality and what these four cases are showing you about and what people should be paying attention to in the UK Police? Yeah, and just a quick thing. Um, David Brookshire with the Mendel Voice did break the Valdez case a few days before we did. Um, we did get the... Um, the plea story with with Kevin Murray first, but that was a long time coming. So with the Valdez case on March 28th of last year, Arturo Valdez is alleging that he was beaten by some officers outside of his home here in Ukiah. Um, And the officers who are listed in the case are Sergeant Ronald Donahue and Officer Eric Rodello and Officer Daniel Parker. And it it sounds like Parker was, was just standing around. But those were three officers last March who are named in a civil lawsuit that's been filed in federal court, the U.S. District Court, um, with 14 counts against the police, the city of Ukiah, and these three policemen. Valdez is also being charged by the people in a criminal case here in Mendocino County, which his lawyer expects is going to be dismissed next month. A few days after Valdez was beaten, and we can see that he was because his mug shot when he was booked shows that he's terribly bruised, his nose is crooked. According to the complaint, he still has trouble breathing through his nose. A few days after that, four separate policemen, including a lieutenant, Lieutenant Andy Phillips and officers Saul Perez, Alex Cowan, and Jordan Miller were caught on film from multiple angles beating Gerardo Magdaleno, who was a naked, mentally ill man having a psychotic episode. He was probably on drugs. Um, he was not being violent. He was not resisting. And we all saw it. It, was, it happened on South State Street. It happened in broad daylight on the main street in town. Yeah. He was beaten savagely. Uh, Those four policemen, as well as the chief at the time, Justin Wyatt, were named in that complaint. And that one settled for about a quarter of a million dollars. Um, The Magdaleno family got $211,000, and then attorney's fees were about $92,000. So those happened within a few days of each other. The ongoing charges were being brought against Kevin Murray former sergeant, going all the way back to 2018, when he's accused of attacking a disabled veteran named Christopher Rascu in his apartment on South Orchard Street. And that case was a civil case that went to civil court and settled for about a million dollars. Recently, a woman who's identified only in court documents by her initials, S.Y., settled with the city for about a quarter million dollars. 
And that's where a lot of charges stemmed from. I think it was five charges on November 25th of 2020. He's accused of basically breaking into her hotel room and um, committing sexual violence against her. She settled with the city. Um, we were looking forward to her testimony in the trial that was scheduled, but that got thrown out because he pled last week to two additional charges that were not listed in the original documents. Um, felony intimidation of a witness. Uh, apparently, he tried to prevent her from testifying. He tried to scare her out of it. And um, misdemeanor false imprisonment of another woman who was originally accusing him of rape. She's identified as Jane Doe in the documents. Um, that was dropped to just misdemeanor false imprisonment. I didn't even know that was a thing, but it is. And, and so he pled to those two counts. Um, he'll be sentenced next month, and he's looking at either a couple years probation, maybe a few years in jail. Um, if he makes mistakes on his probation, he could go to prison. Um, he is going to be counted as a felon. This is a, a strike against him. So if he gets brought up on other charges, it'll be considered in sentencing. So he pled guilty to one felony and one misdemeanor and got rid of the raft of other incredibly serious charges against him, including weapons charges, sexual assault charges. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the weapons are kind of a big deal as a felon, he's not going to be allowed to own weapons or ammunition, pepper spray, guns. And he was required to surrender his weapons back when he was first being charged. And he went, he lived in Lake County. He went to the uh, police department of the sheriff in Lake County and surrendered four handguns and a rifle with a scope. And it was later discovered that he had tried to hide an assault rifle at his father-in-law's house. And I don't know exactly what kind of weapon that is. It's a weapon that you're only allowed to have if you're a police officer. So apparently he had bought it when he was a police officer. It belonged to him. And um, I'm sure it was a very expensive and desirable piece of equipment if that's what you want to spend your money on. And he didn't turn it in when he was supposed to. And that looked like it was going to be a big deal. It didn't even come up at the court proceeding recently, but uh, he's basically established that he is willing to blow off the requirements that the court has imposed upon him and to lie to the court. Let's talk about the rot from the bottom to the top. We have, just two weeks ago, the chief of the Ukiah police was removed from his position. Yeah, we don't know that much about why former Chief Noble Weidelich was removed from his position, we know that he's the second chief we've gone through in the last year, a little over a year. We've gone through a couple of police chiefs. Um, Noble Weidelich is facing a trial in September, personally, um, brought against him by his uh, ex-girlfriend, former fiance, Amanda Carley. Amanda Carley is suing Noble Weidelich as an individual, as well as the county of Mendocino and her former employer, the probation department. And Weidelich is also being investigated by the Sonoma County Sheriff's Office, which should be turning its, the results of its investigation into our district attorney's office any minute now, into allegations of an assault on a woman. And that's all we know is that 
a woman has accused him of assault and he was terminated by the city on some matter that may be somehow connected to but is separate from that. We don't know exactly what happened, um, why he was abruptly terminated. We got the notice from the city at something like 10 or 11 o'clock at night. And um, I had, you know, he was, he was placed on administrative leave on a Tuesday night and then a few days later he was fired now, what about complaints to the city? Is there anywhere where people can either make complaints or see the history of complaints that have been made? How do we track what's happening other than these high-profile abuses that come out because they go through the civil court process? It's really hard, and I have not figured that out. I requested public documents in the Magdaleno case. I've requested a few documents. Um, it seems fairly easy to... Um, to turn it down, especially if it's part of an investigation and there's always an ongoing investigation. Um, it's, it's tough to get police documents and um, of course everything's buried in really elaborate codes. You have to know a lot of jargon. Um, I do remember something called the Human Rights Monitoring Project in the mid-late 90s um, and other sort of police accountability groups in the region that we're all over this kind of stuff because obviously it's nothing new, but in the absence of that kind of community presence, uh, it seems to proliferate. And, and really, I'm really kind of disgusted and scared about the Kevin Murray, the resolution of those charges because basically Kevin Murray behaved like a monster and he's getting off with a slap on the wrist. And, and that's just that's just hard to see in general, but it's unfair, it's unjust for the victims, obviously. But it's really bad for this whole culture of violence at the Ukai Police Department if they can see that the worst among them gets n almost no consequences for the behavior. And now we're looking at, what, a third of the force is involved in what we, uh, what we know of to be violent incidences? from Magdaleno to the chief to Valdez. And how do we hold them accountable? There are situations where the entire public is basically drafting itself as cop watch. Like the first videos we saw of Magdaleno from five or six different angles were from bystanders filming that really well. And the, the way that we found out about Kevin Murray falsifying the report in the 2018 attack on Christopher Rescue was from bystander video. So, you know, people with their cell phones are slowly um, presenting video, and I don't know if it's, if it's actually resulting in change. It seems right now that it's just resulting in giant payouts, a million and a half in the past year and a half. Um, and I can count at least three people who are probably looking at getting nice payouts. We've got... Um, the Valdez family in, in federal court, if that if they get a payout. Um, and we know in the Valdez case that the, the security cameras, their personal security cameras at their home filmed much of the interaction with the police, and those, that video contradicts what shows up in the police's report. So we know there's something going on there, although you weren't able to see the video yourself. I did not see the video, but that's what it says in the complaint, and that is what Richard Middlebrook, the attorney, told me. Um, and I hope that I can see those videos as this case unwinds. But 
um, attorneys aren't going to take a case like this unless they can expect to get paid. Isn't that fascinating that the security cameras were there not to protect the Valdez family from criminals, but from the police? Hmm. Yeah. Um, this this um, unknown woman who accused Weidelich might be in line for a payout. And we do have to remember that Isabel Sidorakis has a case against Kevin Murray and the city of Ukiah and the police department also for, um, you know, Murray's attempted assault on her and the, the subsequent um, toxic work environment, retaliation, discrimination, sexism, and the, the failure to protect her from that or you know those are the allegations in her complaint so it's hard to keep it all straight it really is there's so many of them it's hard to even keep it all straight yeah it's really hard and it's and it's painful to know that because you know people it's always we remember when Magdalena was beaten up that all kinds of um of um unsavory details about his past came out and I think I, I remember reading a comment on uh, in you should never read the comments to <laughs> on the internet to your own story, but I, I remember someone saying, you know, if if one of these allegations against Magdaleno is true, then Ukiah police hold my beer. Like, you know, there's definitely a segment of the population that is totally happy about publicly paid vigilante justice. How can people follow your coverage? You you definitely report for KZYX. How can they find that? But you're reporting in other outlets too. I also report for Kim Kemp at Redheaded Black Belt in Southern Humboldt County and for Matthew Lefevre at Mendo Fever, which is an online publication here in Mendocino County. Thank you, Sarah. That was Sarah Reith of the KZYX Local News. I'm Alicia Bales, and this is Byline Mendocino. Byline Mendocino is a biweekly program that looks at local news and newsmakers in Mendocino County. The Service Employees International Union Local 1021 was back in force at the Board of Supervisors this week. The counties offered them a 0% cost of living allowance, even as inflation soars to 8%. The rest of the show, I'll be talking with organizer Patrick Hickey, and we'll hear the voices of union members who made their case for fair wages at the board chambers in Ukiah on Tuesday. My name is Patrick Hickey. I'm the field representative with SEIU Local 1021. the union that represents the majority of employees at Mendocino County. Folks that work in social services, you know, Department of Transportation, Animal Care, um, Behavioral Health, um, the Tax Assessor, uh, Environmental Health, Planning and Building, the whole range of different offices at the county. How many county workers are unionized versus non-union? Well, we, we represent about 850 employees. Um, I believe there's close to 1,200. So there are other bargaining units, you know, the deputy sheriffs, um, the confidential employees, um, mid-management, you know, a number of other groups. Um, but, yeah, we, we represent the, the largest group. Wow, so you represent 850 county workers. How does that work in terms of interacting with the county? What do you do for those workers? Well, we have a collective bargaining agreement, so we have a contract um, that sort of spells out our, our wages, hours, and working conditions, and that's negotiated periodically, typically every three years. We're currently in negotiations with the county for a new agreement to sort of work that sort of stuff out. So I had heard that your last round of negotiations for the county workers with SEIU 1021 went very well. I remember a celebration. 
from um, the accomplishments of the last bargaining team three years ago. How did that go versus how things are going in this round of contract negotiation? Yeah, probably 180 degrees opposite. You know, coming into this series of negotiations, we were hoping that we'd be able to continue to build on those improvements. You know, we were really starting to see an increase in employee morale in a sense that we were getting, you know, up to market rate, that we were starting to be competitive with the other counties around us, that we were going to start staunching the the exodus. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about the train and trot problem here where people come and work here for a few years to get experience and then they move to, you know, Sonoma County or Napa County or Solano County or any other county um, where they can earn significantly more. Good morning, members of the Board of Supervisors. My name is Vince Hawkins, and I work for the County of Mendocino as a health inspector. So I wanted to share a little bit about my experience as a worker here. I can share that I have been directly or indirectly involved with training fellow health inspectors for the last 10 years. And I can tell you, of those nine or 10, that I train directly or indirectly that they've left for other counties. They work in Placer County, Tulare County, Napa, Sonoma, of course, San Francisco. They all work in other places. They were drawn away from working in Mendocino County by better benefits and better pay. If you wanted to, I could walk over to my desk with you, the cubicle where I work, and show you three empty seats. These seats should be filled with health inspectors. I get emails from my fellow health inspectors that I keep contact with throughout the state, and they all say, come work for me, look what we're willing to pay you. And it's twice as much. So uh, when it comes to the topic of your considering a cost of living adjustment for us, I know that my county workers who have retired, at least the ones before December of 2013, all of those retired people, they get a cost of living increase every year. Wouldn't you want to show, show the same care and regard for your current county workers? Thank you for listening. Last round of contract negotiations, there was an average uh, over the three years of about a 20% increase. And that was really necessary because the county had made some pretty big cuts during the recession. And that was really sort of catching back up and starting to get closer again to what the market rate is for a lot of these classifications. Um, and, and because we weren't at market rate, the county was having a very hard time recruiting people and retaining people. Um, we were starting to uh, get ahead of that, but when we started our negotiations earlier this year, um, the county said, oh, they're flat broke, they had no money. They primar primarily focused on the, the reduction in cannabis tax and permit revenues. Um, and they said, you know, in those negotiations, oh, we, we can't afford anything. So there's not going to be any cost of living adjustment, even though we're looking at, you know, 8% plus inflation. So it's really like a huge wage cut for county employees, and that's how the employees are looking at it, with gas prices going up, grocery prices going up. You know, housing prices here in the area are, you know, very challenging for everybody. Um, so, you know, a lot of these folks love working for the county. They, you know, have lived their whole lives here in Mendocino, but they're honestly starting to look elsewhere because they just can't make ends meet. I thought I remembered 
in the last year, the county crowing about their surplus and that, that they had a rainy day fund and that they had turned things around from the days when they didn't have any money at all. And in fact, the progress that the union made and that the county workers made was was celebrated as part of that sort of, you know, great management that got the county back on its feet after the recession, after all these years. So how could in, in one year we, we had such a dramatic turnaround, and do you believe them when they say it's the cannabis tax revenues that, that is causing the problem with the budget? Yeah, we, we have yet to be shown the evidence, right? I mean, part of the problem is, um, you know, they say that cannabis revenues have dropped, but they still haven't completed their audit from last year. Most counties turn those in, you know, December, you know, so we're more than six months late for the, the audit from last year. So we really don't know. The, the Board of Supervisors really don't know because they're not getting that information. Um, they keep saying that, you know, the auditor controller is not providing them with detail, one of the real concerns we had was, you know, when they um, put together and voted on their most recent budget for the 22-23 uh, fiscal year, they honestly didn't have all the information they need to be able to make a, uh, you know, educated decision. You know, the something that we've been bringing up repeatedly is that the county has this 27% vacancy rate. There's over 400 positions that are not filled. Many of those positions are budgeted for. And we've asked them repeatedly over the last number of months for that information, and they keep telling us they don't have it. And you really can't budget if you don't know what you're budgeting for. If you don't know how many employees you actually want to hire and how many positions you want to fill, um, you can't make that budget. Wait, you're asking them how many vacancies there are in the county employees, and they don't know? Well, they know the number of vacancies, but they don't know the number that they've set budget money aside for. Right. So initially they told us, oh, well, of these 402 positions, none of them or very few of them are budgeted. And we said, no, well, that, we don't think that's true. And then since that time, uh, they keep telling us a little bit, oh, well, actually more are budgeted than we first thought. And they keep telling us, oh, well, next time we meet, we'll get you that list of, of positions that are budgeted for. Um, they apparently shared that list with the board at the meeting yesterday. We have not yet seen it. We hope to see it soon. Good morning, Chair Williams, Supervisors, CEO Antle, County Council Curtis. My name is Julie Beardsley, and I am president of SEIU Local 1021, and I'm the Senior Public Health Analyst with Public Health. I come before you today to express concern about some issues vital to keeping our county government functioning. The county currently has an overall vacancy rate of 27%, and some departments it's up to 40%. Marin County supervisors recently sounded the alarm because their vacancy rate has reached 11%. Why does Mendocino County have such a high vacancy rate? There seem to be two reasons. We pay below market wage, which makes it difficult to fill positions, and employees in understaffed departments are buried under excessive workloads, so they end up leaving. They burn out. The result, long wait times for things like building permits, insufficient staff to enforce regulations and collect revenue, overworked, burned-out staff resulting in less effective services for county residents. And to make the situation worse, nearly half of the unfunded positions could be paid for with state and federal funds, bringing money into the county, so it's not just about general fund reserves. The county needs to bring wages up and to hire more staff to provide the services the public expects. 
The union is trying to work with management to solve this problem, but the county seems to be dragging its feet. Last November, the union requested a list of vacant funded positions, many of which have been vacant for months and even years. What is the administration doing to address this problem? Over a month and a half ago, your board asked for a list of vacant funded positions to see if there was a way to redirect money to increase wages and hire more staff. We are still waiting for this information, and I wonder if your board has received it. I think it would have been good to have this information when the county was crafting its budget, and if you still have not received it, I would think that would be cause for concern. SEIU is committed to working with the county to solve these issues, but we need your support to find solutions that will improve the service delivery the public expects. Thank you, and thank you for your good work. When you say they, who are you guys talking to and asking these questions? Are you asking them directly to the board? You know, we are certainly asking the board, but we we uh, work with and, and negotiate with the administration. You know, so the CEO's office, their designated uh, negotiator, they hire a law firm that does their negotiations, um, representatives from human resources. Um, so that's who we're asking, um, you know, because a, a solution to this issue that we see is – you know, with that high vacancy rate that the the county has honestly had for years, if they converted, you know, a portion of those unfilled positions and used that money for wages and for cost of living adjustments, it would greatly improve their retention rate. They would hang on to qualified, experienced employees. It would also make recruiting some of these unfilled positions easier if they could actually pay a competitive salary because they just don't, right? They know that they're below market. They know they can't compete with at their current rates with these other places, and that's why they're losing people, you know, on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Um, so they they need to fix it. They need to, to fix the, the salaries. And this is what we're hearing from managers, too. You know, they tell us, um, you know, sort of behind the scenes that, you know, they're having a real hard time recruiting people because we're just not paying people enough. Um, yeah, so it, it would really, you know, th- what the county needs to do is spend a little money to save money. Mm-hmm. Because right now they're wasting a huge amount of time with recruitment um, and then losing people. And they're spending lots of money training people who then go work for other counties. Because they're just simply not paying them enough for them to stay. Exactly. Yeah, so they're, they're at least 10% uh, below, but in many positions you're talking more like 30 40 50% below. Good morning, board. Good morning, chair. My name is Veronica Wilson. I'm a program administrator in adult and aging services and social services. Many of you um, I've spoken to personally. Um, I've taken calls from you um, regarding homeless services. Um, I am born and raised in Willits. This is my home. This is where I am from. This community is very important to me. It's dear and near to my heart. I want to be here. I want to work for the county of Mendocino. I can't stay here financially if you don't support me, if you don't honor me, if you don't respect me. That's what this is about. This isn't about money. This is about you showing us we are important. There's money available. We all know it. This is not about 
money. This is about not being able to manage it right. We need to do better. I appreciate all your work. Please show me that you appreciate mine. So, okay, so the county's telling you that a lot of these 400 vacancies are not budgeted for. So it's not affecting their bottom line. They just don't hire them. They don't have the money in the budget. They don't pay them. Everything just kind of stays the same. But what you're saying is actually they are budgeted for. There are pots of money sitting there meant to pay these people that they can't hire. And you want them to take that money, if you can figure out how much it is, and direct that toward current employees and their cost of living. Have I got that right? Yeah, yeah, uh, essentially. And, you know, that's that's one potential um, revenue stream. On top of that, though, that the county does have a lot of other funds they received. You know, they've received um, the American Rescue Plan Act funds, $16.8 million. They got a $17 million grant for their, for their cannabis program, a three-year grant. Um, they've received lots of different uh, amounts of money for a variety of programs from the federal government, a lot to do with the pandemic, um, but the uses of those funds are, are quite extensive. So there's lots of different money that's sort of tucked around um, in the county's budget that could be used to make sure that we can recruit and retain staff. Mm-hmm. Um, and and for them to come forward and say, well, we're not going to give people anything in this in this kind of economic environment – is really showing people the door, um, and it's it's going to have drastic and negative consequences for a lot of our departments in this county, and, and county residents are going to feel it. Um, so they really need to, to reach out to the, the CEO, to the Board of Supervisors, and say, you know, you need to get on the ball here and, and do your job and make sure that we retain our, our county staff and, and recruit more county staff so that all these vital services that they're, you know, mandated to perform are getting done. Is one of the things that's not getting done, this gap that you're talking about, that they're not getting the audits from the auditor controller office? Like, what is going on there? It's hard for me to think about being in your position where you're going to negotiate with the county and they're telling you they don't have the money, but you can't look at the numbers to see and, and like you said, we all know that there are these multi-million dollar grants that are coming in, the ARPA funding and a lot of other pots of money. Are they just n- not tracking that money? Or, or how do you know? Yeah, it's very frustrating. Um, in terms of the audit, that's done by an outside firm. Um, so part of the delay, at least as they've explained it to us, has to do with the pandemic, has to do with the fact that the county has received a lot more federal funding, which re- uh, triggers a lot more requirements. But um, interestingly, other counties have not run into that same problem and that same delay. So most of the other counties that we deal with have already gotten their their annual quali- uh, you know um, comprehensive financial reports done and submitted. So their boards have that information when they're crafting their next fiscal year's budget. Our board did not have that information, so they're really just having to go on whatever the CEO's office and auditor's office is telling them. Mm-hmm. But they can't back that up with figures? Uh, not that we've seen. Um, yeah, and, you know, we have a new auditor controller um, and tax collector treasurer now that the positions have been combined. Such a mouthful. It is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So, you know, we're hoping, you know, as as she, you know, gets settled in, um, as the new CEO gets settled in, um, as they actively recruit for a new human resources director, there will be more sort of stability and um, sort of a level of of comfort with working for, with these large budgets. Um, you know, part of our concern is since so many people are new at the county, at the leadership level, that they're just being overly cautious um, to the detriment of the county as a whole, um, and certainly as a detriment to the the county employees because. The, the strategy that they're pursuing is really just going to drive people away and, and just make things much, much worse. All right, so how's the union responding, um, and what are your demands? Yeah, so, you know, at this stage, um, you know, with the uncertainty in the economy and certainly with the uncertainty that the, the administration is feeling, you know, we are looking at just a one-year extension. Um, we need a cost-of-living adjustment um, both to retain our current staff and to recruit new people. We believe, and I think we've shown the administration that the money is there and they need to use it um, because we're losing a lot of opportunities here. We're losing a lot of experience. Good morning, supervisors. Chair Williams. My name is Heidi Corrado. I'm a program administrator with Public Health and I am your Public Health Emergency Preparedness Coordinator. As county employees, we're all emergency service workers. The last few years has provided regular reminders of that fact from fires, pandemics, public safety power shutoffs. County employees have regularly risen to the occasion, sometimes at 2 o'clock in the morning, to put the hours in necessary to keep our residents safe. One way that many counties and municipalities have been showing appreciation for their employees is through the funds from the American Rescue Plan Act. Counties and cities throughout California have been providing one-time payments some, some are calling it essential worker pay, others hero pay, to show their employees that they are valued. In fact, this was one of the listed purposes of ARPA. Now, Mendocino County received ARPA funds. But so far, the administration has said nothing and made no proposals while staff watch other impo- public employees in neighboring counties be acknowledged for their service. You can have the most thorough plans in existence plan for an emergency, but if you don't have the staff to execute them, they'll fail. The pandemic isn't over. Fire season's pretty much year-round now. Public safety power shut off, maybe we get a week notice. We have concurrent disasters. For the county to tell employees that they will not be receiving any Cost of living increase with inflation exploding over 8% is insulting. It's demeaning. Where is this county's priority? We are the boots on the ground. We are the faces that your county constituents see when they need services from this government. We are your right and left hands in an emergency. We know the challenges around recruitment, hiring, retention, because we are the ones still here. We are still making sure that the work is done because it's needed. 
these employees, human beings, this family of coworkers have sacrificed, bled, come to work even when they themselves were evacuated and living in a shelter, worked at home when they were sick with COVID, went to work knowing that they could be called out to respond to a home where everyone in that house was sick. It's true that you cannot buy that kind of work ethic. It's true you cannot buy that kind of loyalty. But it should be rewarded. What are some of the other top issues for your for your union members that they're facing? Wages, cost of living, but are there other things that they're bringing up in these negotiations? Yeah, certainly. I mean, another big issue is is healthcare. You know, that's an issue in all negotiations and and with everybody. The county has a self funded plan, um, and it's been having some issues um, of late. They had to use some of the ARPA funding, $4.7 million, I believe, to plug a shortfall in their self-funded uh, health plan. We have a real challenge here in Mendocino County because we don't have much health um, competition. So, um, you know, costs are high, and we can't really go to someone else um, to try to get um, more competitive care. So that's a challenge for the county. We're encouraging the county to look at entering into a larger pool, um, an insurance plan that will spread the risks out. Um, we have an older workforce. We have a, a less healthy workforce, unfortunately, um, and that's a challenge. It, it makes rates higher, and it makes costs higher. Um, employees aren't real happy with the current health plan. Um, it's The quality is not as good as they would like, and it's very expensive. Um, so we're hopeful that we can make some, some improvements in the plan, um, look at joining a larger, a larger group so that we can spread out that risk, um, you know, because that's really essential. We, you know, we're, we're outside of the range of the Kaisers and the Sutters and some of the other groups that, that might be competition um, that would help reduce our costs, and that's what we experience in a lot of our other um, counties and our contracts. You know, we have agreements in most of our other counties where employees don't have to pay anything for their insurance. It just, they, they receive that benefit. That's not true here in Mendocino County. The costs are so high that employees pay a, a significant amount every month out of their paychecks for their health insurance, and they're really not happy with the plan as it exists. Tell me about the action on Tuesday and what, what your call to action was and how things went. Yeah, so... County employees from, from throughout the county, you know, from Fort Bragg, from Willits here in Ukiah, converged on the Board of Supervisors meeting yesterday morning. Um, they left their, you know, their workstations and um, came to the board to say, you know, you need to hear us. You need to understand what's going on here. You need to understand that the proposals that your uh, administration is making are not tenable. Um, we cannot survive on a 0% COLA with the inflation going through the roof. Um, if you expect us to be able to continue to do the work that we do and that we love, we need you to step in and we need you to do something. Um, so I think people spoke very passionately about that and, and very forthrightly. Um, we hope that the board listened. We hope that they gave their negotiating team some direction. Um, you know, it's it's been said that, oh, what well, 
you know, they've said, we don't have the money to do this, but they have the money. It's a question of priorities. And if they don't make a priority of the folks who are doing the work, the frontline employees who are making all the different things that the county does happen, um, you know, we're going to go down a very dark road. My name is Jacqueline Otis. I'm a social worker with adult and aging services here in Ukiah. I've been an employee of Mendocino County for exactly 22 years, six months, and two days. I love my job. I truly do. I love being able to assist those that may need a helping hand. It's an amazing experience. I'm here today on behalf of not only myself, but all of my coworkers. We are the ones, we are the people that showed up during a global pandemic and worked and continued to work in the office day after day. I ask, what do we get in return? What do we get in return for dedication and commitment? We get below standard wages and very little recognition from any of you. There's a 40% vacancy rate among social workers in our family and children's services. They are overworked and underpaid and underappreciated. It makes our job even harder than it already is. I'm inviting each and every one of you to contact a social worker, especially in our family and children's services or our adult protective services, and shadow them. And then ask yourself, do you not have the funds to increase county worker salary to make them competitive with other similar counties? Come sit with an eligibility worker for a day. Get berated and yelled at called names or be in a position to tell a hard-working Mendocino County family that cannot survive in this county with the ridiculous price of rent and cost of living, tell that family that they're over income for services and they are not eligible. So again, I invite you all to look in the mirror, tell yourself that each and every one of us employees doesn't deserve salary increases and an incentive. Can you do it? It's hard, but our job is harder. Thank you. Is there a role for the community to play here? Can can people who um, live in Mendocino County who aren't county employees play a role? Can they support the workers? How? Yeah, we certainly encourage um, county residents to reach out to their board of supervisor member and let them know that you support county employees and that you believe it's reasonable for county employees to receive a reasonable cost of living adjustment, right? It's They're not asking for a wage increase, they just want to stay in place. They don't want to fall even further behind. We're not expecting to get an amount that's going to cover the full increase in the cost of living, but the goal is just to not fall so far behind that it just becomes unmanageable. Mm-hmm. Do you have numbers that you've proposed? We have. Um, you know, that's that's sort of still in flux. The most recent inflation numbers for our area here is 8.8%. You know, what most counties have been settling for um, in this area is you know, between 4 and 8%. The other thing that's sort of in the mix that people have probably heard about is the American Rescue Plan Act money. Um, one of the – there's sort of three criteria for that money, uh, how it should be used. One of those criteria is to compensate essential workers, public employees who have worked through the pandemic – You know, so we see a lot of counties, a lot of municipalities who have given significant bonuses to their employees who work through the pandemic. So far, the uh, Mendocino County hasn't proposed anything. Um, They they received that close to $17 million. 
um, that they're using for a whole range of different things, some of it you know, quite important. But one of the purposes, of, again, of that money is to compensate county employees. So we're hopeful that they'll, they'll look at that as well. You know, that's certainly a, a way to get us through this challenging period. Um, so I think, bottom line, what, what employees are looking for is a reasonable cost of living adjustment and you know, some kind of ARPA bonus um, so that they can continue to make ends meet you know, going forward. And honestly, the, you know, the economic forecasts going forward aren't particularly bright, so we don't necessarily expect things to be a whole lot better a year from now. But right now we're focused on what do we need to do over the next 12 months to keep our staff intact, to re- attract more new, uh, new blood to the county so that we can continue to provide the vital services that county residents expect. Thank you very much. That was SEIU Local 1021 organizer Patrick Hickey and several union members who spoke at the Board of Supervisors meeting this Tuesday, July 12th. That's it for this week's edition of Byline Mendocino. I'm your host, Alicia Bales. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.